Hi, I'm Jake Hanrahan from Popular Front, and you're listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. The days are getting longer, but the pods keep coming, don't worry. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, listeners, is Alexandra Kashuta. Alex is a writer, commentator, and describes herself on her Twitter bio as a female Chad writer. I'll let you Google what that term means. Originally from Romania, Alex moved to the UK a few years ago, where she lived in London, but has now moved back to Romania at time of recording. She also might have one of the best voices I've ever heard for podcasts, even to rival first Just Checking In pod guest Tim Fletcher, so I thoroughly enjoyed listening to this one and editing it. Alex's writing journey, the dating economy, and Alex's lived experience of ADHD are all on the menu for this one. This is how our conversation went. Alex, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Ever since friend of the pod, Will Costello, shared the interview you did with Benjamin Boyce, I have been so keen to have you on the pod and hear from your perspectives. And here we are. First of all, how are you? I am really well. Thank you so much, Freddie, for having me on. No worries. We've got so much to talk, discuss, ruminate on. So shall we just get started? Let's kick off the pod, Alex, by talking about this writing and commentating journey of yours. First off, how did you discover your love for writing, opinion forming, and when did it become more than maybe just a hobby? Hmm. I think I've always been writing in some capacity throughout my life. I've had, you know, various journals growing up and it's it's always been a, a mechanism for me to to get my thoughts in order. Because, I mean, as we'll probably get into a bit later, I, I have ADHD and uh, my thought process is a bit jumbled by its, uh, by its very nature. So I need kind of an, an outside brain mechanism. And I've found writing to be a great way to, to sort that out. And I've also always been a curious person. I've always been interested in discovering things that might be hidden. I know it sounds a bit pompous, but just uh, exploring ideas and, you know, finding out things about the world. And I found writing, especially essays, to be a good way to clarify my ideas and also find other people to connect with that might resonate with these ideas. And as you went on this journey, did you know fairly on the topics you wanted to write about or did it take a while to crystallize? I think they, they kind of come to you. It's just essentially what what I was interested in throughout my life. I mean, when I was in first grade, I was writing poetry about the seasons. And now I write essays on, on politics and society. And it's just what's the most current thing in, in my, my life. So yeah, it depends. I've, I've got quite a quite a very wide spectrum of, of stuff that I write about. And yeah, whatever is interesting to me in the moment. You've written about so many interesting topics which have a mental health lens or mental health perspective. The first one I wanted to talk to you about is an article you wrote on your website, sortalexout.com, which was called Dating in 2019, The Harsh Truth. Now, for anyone who hasn't read it, tell me why you wanted to write it and then the issues it discusses. 
Yeah, I, I think it's probably one of my, my longest essays because there's a, a lot of stuff that I wanted to cover. And what I kind of the, the impetus to, to write that was essentially my experience dating and also the experiences of people that I knew, acquaintances, friends, and kind of the hive mind, especially of women that I was part of. And at that time I was in London. So it kind of chronicles both what I saw from a personal perspective, but also what I saw kind of systemically happening within dating. So it's uh, essentially a description of dating marketplace that was changing at the time. So or it already had changed from a norm that was pretty much offline before we had online dating. And then it became almost exclusively online and how I saw that changing um, essentially the marketplace. I mean, it's a crude way of putting it, but it's just the way people interact and kind of how they find each other or don't find each other because of these new mechanisms that were in place. One issue you touch on, which I'm sure has a mental health angle itself, is the issue of hypergamy, which former Just Checking In podcast Will Costello also discussed. Just explain what that concept is to the listeners and the mental health implications it might have too. So hypergamy is a concept that comes out of evolutionary biology it's um, descriptive of a, a trait that females of the human species, but in some ways other species as well, have to seek to mate up and across hierarchies of status, of power, of, in our case, a lot of times uh, financial power as well. So women tend to want to date people that are on many axes better than them. While men are interested, obviously, in, in uh, you know, gaining good-looking mate, but they are not that interested in factors like status or achievement or things like that. So hypergamy is essentially this very female-specific um, characteristic in dating that, yeah, we look for some some high-status guys, both from a physical attractiveness standpoint as also from a status standpoint, you know, who's powerful, who has money, very crudely put, but yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, I completely agree. And there's a quote where you say, men overall don't much care that you've just made partner in your law firm. And uh, amongst male friends I know, probably including myself, this is 100% sure. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a guy who turns down a, a nine out of 10 beautiful woman because they work behind a checkout or something like that. Your concept and argument is definitely, I think, true in many cases. The other concept you discuss in the article is how much easier it is to secure dates through online dating apps as opposed to the days of going in cold with no social media, well, the beautiful people anyway. Do you think the ease of accessibility has actually, in a way, fundamentally damaged the way people communicate with each other because of the supposed lack of effort you need to make? And, and do you have any concerns about that for the mental health of the next generation coming up who will only know dating apps? Yes, and I think this affects not only dating, which is kind of just a subset of the online standard that we've set up, you don't really get to develop social skills if you're not really in the arena, uh, kind of having to bump up against other personalities, having to overcome issues, solve problems, get into fights, solve issues. Now, if you want, you can retreat into these uh, so-called echo chambers where everyone agrees with you and there's not no social friction uh, and there's no rejection and there's just only positive affirmation. And I think that atrophies your social skills to a point. I think you kind of start to see that with, you know, the Generation Z, but I think it affects people. You know, I'm I'm a millennial and I'm I'm definitely, you know, less less uh, socially adept than I used to be just because I'm yeah, I'm I'm so online. The final part of this article I wanted to discuss Alex because we could do a whole podcast on this and I'm conscious of time is the idea of this new polygamy. So I'll pick out a couple of quotes where you kind of explain this in more detail. So you say 
On the level of attractiveness measured by the frequency of swiping right, the bottom 80% of men are competing for the bottom 22% of women, and the top 78% of women are competing for the top 20% of men. So it's a bit of a, I guess, at first confusing stat, but you, I'm sure you can explain it in a bit more detail. It's a bit depressing to examine, isn't it, if you're not in that top 20% of men? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, I think that that stat comes from some guy who was not in the top 20% of men who did kind of a, who put on his data scientist hat and did quite an extensive analysis on a data set that he had from Tinder, I think it was. And, you know, I think the result was that the Gini coefficient, which is kind of this, this coefficient of, of equality that's used for, you know, geopolitics to say, you know, which countries are more egalitarian than others, was lower than, I think, I don't know, Equatorial Guinea or some some place that's, you know, known for, <laughs> for issues with inequality. So it's quite an unequal place. And it's very unequal, especially from the perspective of these, you know, bottom 80% of men who, by definition, include your average Joes and even men that are, you know, above average in attractiveness, just by the nature of how statistics works. So yeah, these apps, essentially, they kind of quantify people by a very physical standard and by external markers of attractiveness or of status. You know, you, you see that there's there are all these stories of guys taking pictures with baby tigers or next to cars or things like that. They're really, really trying to, to maximize the status points and to present themselves as the most beautiful peacock uh, on these apps because they know they don't have many chances. And the, the polygamy aspect of it uh, is that it essentially funnels all the women almost to a very small percentage of men or those top 20, top 10% of guys who get almost all the dates because men do date down. So they're not as uh, obsessed, you know, they date, you know, a more wide variety of women. They don't really care about status that much. So if a top level guy, top 10% guy wants to date, you know, he might not turn down a woman that's, you know, more, not necessarily, you know, a, a supermodel or something like that. So those guys end up dating five, six, seven times a week. You know, they, they, they tire themselves out. And on the other end, women, they get to date these guys, but these super daters, they don't really want to settle down because it's either a lot of fun or they're kind of in this carousel mindset that the next one might be the one. So even if they want to have a more serious relationship, there's always, you know, oh, what am I missing out on? They've just been so trained to be a bit of a stud. So yeah, I think it's, um, it is in a way, you know, it's not a polygamy. Polygamy would imply marriage, but it's a polygyny. So few men, very, very many women. You mentioned there that fear of missing out. I guess for a lot of men, it will make them look at these studs or elite men as a fear of missing out because they're not getting the dates that their friend is, who's the captain of the football team, as you say. But also, in another aspect, do you think this has put different or new pressures or expectations when it comes to dating and men and women? So, for example, the fact that fitness culture has exploded amongst men, especially kind of my age group, 20, you know, 18 to kind of 35 men are going to the gym more and more and more. And obviously, in one aspect, that's a very good thing because exercise, healthier nation, all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, there's a new phenomenon, which I've read in an article, can't remember where it was from, kind of bigorexia, where men are trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger, looking bulkier. Do you think dating apps, because they are so, I guess, based on physical attractiveness and appearances is making this a lot worse? Or are you kind of a bit ambivalent on that? I think it's it's hard to tell. I think there's there's a lot of focus on physicality in, in every 
aspect you know even instagram which is not officially a dating app is very much a, you know you get brownie status brownie points you know the, the better you look or the more exotic locations you place your new physique in and there's all sorts of uh, you know status that you can garner like that but i think dating apps are probably a big part of it especially with the younger generation and especially now when there's essentially literally no other way of meeting people except for a dating app. So you want to really optimize that profile, you know, get the guns out and, <laughs> and try to try to collect. <laughs> I had one more question around the dating economy, which I came up with the day before we did this record, which is the rise in recent years amongst women more prevalently about kind of empowering them over being self-partnered, as Emma Watson puts it, or alonement. Now for men, when I've been doing my research on this, the equivalent seems to be this men going their own way phenomenon or mugtow, probably because people will generally say, in inverted commas, it's fine for men to be single because you can sleep about when you want, not taking into account the vast majority of men aren't fuckboys, in inverted commas. Do you think there is a stigma here? Yes, definitely. I think it's kind of the reverse of the classical double standard of, you know, women being, you know, called a slutty if they they sleep around too much and, and men being called studs. If men don't get to sleep around, you know, if they're incels or, you know, involuntarily celibate, it's very stigmatizing because, you know, they, they can't get any. And, you know, there's, it seems like as a society, we don't really... We don't draw the equivalence between calling a woman slutty and calling a a man an incel. You know, calling a woman slutty is is starting to be very frowned upon. You know, we have slut walks. There's quite an institutional push to, to not stigmatize women for their sexual history. But we have no problems, uh, you know, essentially confining men to gaming dungeons and telling them it's their own fault if they're not successful in the sexual marketplace. It's definitely a double standard. When I was in school, the idea of like virgin baiting was a big thing. And obviously there was a lot of toxic masculinity, which was never addressed or nipped in the bud back then. So if someone knew you were, if a boy knew you were a virgin and called you that, it was like the ultimate put down in a cussing match, we used to call it, where you wouldn't have any answer. You'd have nothing. You couldn't come back with anything. So from what you're saying and what, you know, Will Costello talks about, that school mentality of virgin baiting almost doesn't seem to have been eradicated. Yes, I think high school is much longer than than people imagine, and sometimes it goes all the way to the old folks' home. <laughs> it's uh, there's all sorts of all sorts of you know patterns of thinking that are are very hard to eradicate, and you know may, maybe are almost impossible to eradicate. You know they're just driven underground. I think we're starting to you know make more inroads in and in, you know kind of normalizing sexuality in women. But because men don't really have a very powerful lobby or their lobby is, you know, MGTOW and and MRAs and things like that that are not mainstream at all. These uh, rights movements for men don't don't really make much, uh, much headway. Another really fascinating article you wrote was one called Why We Can't Talk to Each Other. I guess it has a more political angle, but just tell the listeners about this one and the issues discussed within it, as there's one concept that you discussed called a, a rule omega, which I think is a great life tool as well. Yes, I think it's uh it's more about understanding the various uh just you know the basic disagreements that are almost epistemological like a lot of people they don't really create an argument they talk against each other they really identify with their positions so essentially the gist of the article is that to be able to create dialogue we need to kind of step away a little bit from this complete identification with our position so to kind of create at least one degree of distance 
and that doesn't really come naturally, unfortunately. So you kind of need these heuristics and these these kind of rules of thought, these kind of mental models to adopt and to realize that the other person is not evil, or at least they don't see themselves as evil, even if they have an opinion that you know might clash with with yours, or you see that you think the consequences of their idea might be terrible. They have good intentions, and they see themselves as having good intentions. And if you kind of integrate that mental model, it's much easier to to understand or to to put yourself in the in the position of the other person. I want to dive into the Benjamin Boyce podcast you did, so I'll put a link to where anyone can listen to it in full in the show notes, but. In this pod, and you mentioned it a bit earlier as well, that amongst your friends in the the grand metropolis or metropoli of London, that a lot of them aren't paired up and perhaps are feeling quite lonely, perhaps even experiencing mental health difficulties as a result, if I'm correct in saying. And you say that modern feminism hasn't really provided a solution to this. Could you expand on that a little bit for me? Yes, I think modern feminism tends to, or at least modern feminism, obviously feminism has many strains, you know, there's radical feminists, there's there's all sorts of schools of feminism, but the feminism that, you know, when you open up the internet and you see it, kind of this, uh, this, this corporate, you know, standardized feminism that we get through the TV or on the major websites, you know, BuzzFeed style feminism is, as I said, pretty corporate. It's very, very aligned with, with the interests of capital in a way. It sounds very, uh, very, uh, you know, grave, but it's essentially, it's all about being a productive individual of kind of cultivating your own choices as an individual. And I think it ignores a lot of biological realities that I think women, especially moving throughout life and female life patterns are very different to male life patterns. And this is something that's, uh, that's ignored. And this is something that's salient, not only in, in, in dating, it's salient in family formation, and it's salient in how you want to construct uh, your job path as well. So everything's kind of set up on this man frame. So it's essentially a, the ideal career of a, of a guy. And then as a woman, you're just supposed to be integrating into it. And if you don't fall perfectly into this pattern, there's either something wrong with you or you've just been co-opted by internalized misogyny or, you know, the patriarchy got to you or something. And I think this is this is serving women very poorly, even though it's sold as empowerment. I don't see that many people feeling that empowered by it. You built on this point by saying that things like motherhood is denigrated as well as outside of um, subsidized childcare. Could you expand on this in perhaps a, a mental health perspective when it comes to female mental health? You also used the example of a Fortune 500 CEO in the podcast to illustrate your point. Yes, I think the life path of a Fortune 500 CEO is very glamorized nowadays. You know, these these people are seen as the as the kings of society. You know, they've made it. Uh, we often hear, uh, oh, there's just not enough women in the Fortune 500. It's, you know, it's it's one of those things. Being a Fortune 500 CEO is like being a, a top athlete. That is your life. It's essentially a huge sacrifice on the altar of status, a sacrifice that a lot of women don't necessarily feel like making or don't need to make, especially because it doesn't really give them as much as it gives men who, you know, we've established before, really do benefit a lot from status, even in dating and in all sorts of areas. Um, and they're also typically compete amongst each other to see who's the top guy. There's all sorts of, you know, impulses that most women don't necessarily have. And I think this, you know, glamorizing these types of individuals and saying, oh, okay, if we just had 50-50 women, you know, the world would be a a much fairer place, uh, really ignores a lot of biological realities about not only, you know, what women can do, but what they would like to do and what preferences they have and they show they have throughout their lives. 
One really wondrous point, I think, which took me back a little bit you made was when you talked about this idea of women being nature. Can you tell me a bit more about this? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's more one of my more metaphorical points. It was kind of in a in a tweet that got essentially that's why uh, Benjamin contacted me for the podcast because he really liked that tweet that tells you about the power of Twitter. <laughs> it's essentially my point was about women kind of representing this uh, this choosing principle. You know, they're they're kind of the arbiters of evolution of nature itself. That's why you essentially have this this imbalance in Tinder. It's like that women. They essentially, you know, this hypergamy, this drive to, you know, only pair up with the top guys has been kind of an evolutionary push since the dawn of time and kind of women encapsulate this. And they essentially drive society through indirectly through this push by rewarding men. I mean, you, you could call this just rewarding men with their amazing femaleness, you know, their beauty, their companionship, everything by only rewarding the guys who actually gather status. And that means people who anything from, you know, indoor plumbing to the creation of the stock market, you know, has been driven by people who, you know, we're looking for status, we're looking to create wealth, we're looking to get to that next level, because yeah, it is salient for dating and for yeah, for forming a family. A final discussion point I wanted to tackle here, Alex, is when we spoke off air, you told me about this decline in male spaces. Now, we could talk stereotypically about how a group of lads will act very differently on a night out with all their girlfriends as opposed to without them. But tell me more about this and any mental health implications you may see. Yes, I think the wiping out of both male and completely female spaces will probably have consequences that, you know, are hard to measure at this point because it's it's been going on for maybe, you know, one or two generations back in the day, especially when people were a bit more tied to, to their locality. Groups of females would have their own clubs, their own things to do. They would congregate to do more, you know, more stereotypical activities around the house. It would help each other out. And I think men would do the same. They would have, you know, their lodges, their woodworking there and, and also work Work itself, the place where you spend the most time, was pretty gender segregated. So there were male spaces, you know, especially in, you know, heavy industry or construction or, you know, the the factories of, of yore were pretty gender segregated, either by function or by just the nature of the work. These were spaces where men could act like men, could, you know, make their dirty jokes. And, you know, I mean, whatever you think about that, it's a, it's a pressure release valve for a lot of people. And now to integrate, you know, we're kind of in the era of sensitivity training, which, you know, is a good thing on one end because it does teach people how to interact with the opposite sex. But it does also kind of, you know, wipe out this, these spaces where women can be women and men can be women uh, and they, uh, yeah, they don't really have to cater to each other in, in any way. Given you are definitely not shy in putting your opinion out there, Alex, and some of your views would certainly go against the grain of some other people's. Is social media abuse ever something you've experienced? And if so, how bad has it ever become and and what impact has it had on you? Hmm. I've had a few people come for me. <laughs> it's not not in a in a you know uh, organized or uh, you know concerted fashion or anything. It does sting, especially if the criticisms are you know more directed at my person rather than at my arguments. You know, I'm happy to discuss 
whatever. I think, you know, I, I've kind of come to the conclusions that I have through experience and, and kind of really, um, you know, being in these spaces. And I don't think it's, you know, my points are that extreme, but I think sometimes people just, you know, they, they like to pick at the person because they think it's an easier way to, you know, just do character assassination instead of really engaging with the argument. But to be honest, it hasn't really happened that often. I would say 98% of my interactions online are positive. But the more interactions I have, and I'm, you know, luckily getting lots more interactions lately, that 2% starts looking larger and larger. And it's just, it's just, you know, the the negativity bias, you do start to, you know, think, oh, people, people don't like me. But no, it's, it's just, a, you know, there's a constant 2% of people who will like you, who will not like you no matter what you do. So it's just kind of having to live with it. We've talked about Alex, the writer and commentator. I want to talk about in your own journey in a bit more detail now, Alex. So I ask all my guests this question first. Tell me a bit about your early life in Romania, your childhood, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Alex we meet here? Hmm. Yes, I think my childhood was reasonably happy. I grew up in, in Romania, uh, partly in a, in a small town and, and partly in, in the mountains because we had a cabin and we were most, most of the time we were there. And so I was really close to nature, which is, you know, one of, one of the great loves of my life. I'm always really, uh, yeah, in love with nature and foraging and doing all sorts of nature related stuff. So that's been, uh, that's been a big, uh, a big blessing to me. Early in my life, I mean, it's, you know, as I said, most, mostly peaceful, but you know, there were some pockets of chaos as well. And yeah, my, my parents had a, a pretty tumultuous relationship and uh, the background of my family is there. There's some uh, personality disorders. So there's people with, you know, quite strong emotions, not, uh, not never held back. And it, it was quite a, a scary situation sometimes. I was kind of, though I'm a pretty extroverted person, I was kind of moved to be more of an introverted person because of those uh, conditions. I took to books, I took to reading, you know, it, it paid off. I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of the space that I was funneled in by that uh, situation. And I'm kind of, I'm happy about it because it, it brings me a lot of joy now. Outside of that, I mean, yeah, I guess you know, the only thing I realized is that, you know, I've probably had ADHD my whole life and it's kind of left a mark on on some things. And because I was diagnosed late, late in life, I didn't really know what was going on. So it's interesting kind of how that affected my personality, kind of trying to compensate for, I mean, I don't know if you call them symptoms, but the uh, just uh, the way it, it played out for me. Before we get to your ADHD in more detail, I just want to talk about your accent a little bit, because for the listeners, they will probably notice that you don't have a stereotypical Eastern European accent. Where did that develop? Yeah, I, I watched a lot of television. <laughs> this is so much television. You can't imagine. You should hear my German accent. This is about about as good as, as this one, uh, just because I watched. We had uh, English television and we had German television. That's where the cartoons were. And that's uh, that's where I got my English <laughs> If I'm right in saying you moved to Vienna to go to school and then Barcelona for university and finally London for work, for the former two, what were those experiences like? And do you think it's had an impact on your ability to put roots down or feel connected to one particular place? Like, you know, I've fortunately been in London because I was born and raised here all my life. Yeah, I think it, um, you know, I was about 18 when I when I moved out and tried to 
integrate. And as I said, I'm kind of a, a weird uh, extrovert can trapped in an introvert's body <laughs> or something. Um, I'm uh, kind of a, a reticent extrovert. It wasn't very easy for me to, to integrate, especially, I think, at the start in Vienna, where I spent probably most of my time. It was there for about five years. It was a bit tricky. I spoke German, but I spoke German with a German accent from Germany. And that already made me a, a bit of a little bit of an outlier, not as much as my my other my friends who I knew from Romania or Eastern European. And it had, you know, thick Dracula accents, but still I wasn't I wasn't one of them. And I always kind of blame myself because I was like, oh, you should be trying harder. You should be, you know, socializing harder. But then I don't know. I didn't want to be uh, too aggressive about it. So, you know, I had a, I had a small group of friends, but never really became the social butterfly that I dreamt that I could be. We'll come to expat culture and integration a little bit later in the, in this topic. But when it comes to your mental health, you've never spoken openly about it before, if I'm right in saying. And when we spoke off air, you told me you had been through uh, a couple rounds of therapy. If you could, just tell me a bit about your experiences here and your mental health in this period of your life. You can go into as much or as little detail as you want. Of course. Yeah. I mean, mental health has been, you know, I, I've had kind of episodes where I felt like, you know, I needed to, yeah, to, to sort out some some issues. I felt like I was struggling alone. They have been kind of sporadic. I feel like overall throughout my life, my mental health has been pretty, yeah, relatively stable. My first uh, encounter with therapy was my father died when I was fairly young or I was 17. I mean, to me, that was fairly young. And I had a, a little bit of therapy at that point just to, you know, kind of help me cope and see what what's going on. And then I had some kind of work-related anxiety issues, and I did some some CBT, uh, which I found helpful. I mean, it's essentially you know kind of like stoicism in a can. It's just quite it's quite good, you know. It's uh, and it's good to have someone to just kind of keep you accountable. That's what I loved about CBT. It's like it's not uh, psychoanalysis. I can't just sit down and start you know riffing because that's the thing I love to do most, just to ramble on about my childhood. They would just stop me and tell me, no, 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 <laughs> you need to you need to do these five extra exercises and I'll see you next week. And I'm like, oh, but I wanted psychoanalysis. <laughs> so I love the the tough love that I got at CBT. And I think, you know, I could recommend it for that, for that reason. It was helpful to me, though I haven't really done it long term. I always felt like after about two months, I kind of exhausted the therapy. I felt better. And then I kind of just stopped it. So I, either I didn't really need to or Maybe it just kind of did it, ran its course. I learned my lesson. So <laughs> that was it. We'll move on to your ADHD now, because I think stereotypically people associate attention deficit hyperactive disorder with a child who refuses to sit still, is disruptive or even antisocial. Now, that might be true for a, a few cases or for some children. But what was your experience of ADHD growing up? As you were someone who told me you were very intelligent and achieved good grades. So you might have gone against that stigma or stereotype people might have had about it. Yeah, I think it's, it's a kind of ADHD, or at least, you know, now learning about it, it's pretty hard to spot for people who have a high verbal ability and that can kind of compensate. The marker of the inattentive type, which is what I've been diagnosed with, is that people are called underachievers. And, you know, that's been, <laughs> that's been probably the moniker of my life. There's always someone telling my parents, why well, she really applied herself man, she would be doing so much better. And, you know, I was just there kind of almost crying thing. Oh, my God, guys, you don't even know. Um, I am applying myself. This is this is really hard. So, 
yeah, I, I got good grades. I was always, I was never, I was never close to the top that I was trying really hard. And in the subjects that required mental, I don't know, kind of, I don't know exactly what it's called, but things like mathematics or things where you kind of have to imagine numbers or keep things in your mind while you're working on something else. Those were absolutely disastrous for me. I always needed a piece of paper to use as my second brain to think through any problem because like doing math in my head, my IQ is about 20. Like, it's just absolutely impossible to do. Even like additions, <laughs> I'm like, it, everything goes black. So things like that. Um, yeah, we're, we're quite, we're quite, a, quite an issue. I think it's been quite a, a discovery for me to, to find out about ADHD. And yeah, it's, it's helped me. It's helped me understand myself and it's helped me, you know, figure out mechanisms to get things done and to get to the point where, where I want to be navigating what I have rather than just berating myself for not being able to be, you know, the, the super productive 10 hour a day worker that ideally I should be. You told me when it came to your ADHD off air that in the past, you may have internalized some of the stigmas people had about ADHD onto yourself and how you were as a person. How has your perspective changed? And like you said, have there been methods that you can use to almost weaponize it in a way to help productivity or other aspects of your life? Yes, exactly. I think ADHD is, you know, a lot of times misunderstood as, you know, oh, this is just a one big pile of, of disaster. And it, it actually has certain certain areas that are quite almost superpowers. You know, you have this ability to hyper focus. Unfortunately, it's a bit like a fire hose. You don't really get to choose often what you're going to hyper focus on. So I kind of now knowing what the issue is and kind of understanding myself a bit better, I've realized that, you know, to be able to harness my superpower, I really need to have a quite a, a specific schedule set up from the day before, because, you know, whenever I try to start working just, you know, out of the cold, I will start hyper-focusing on something that's absolutely unrelated to what I have to do and then wake up four hours later and be like, oh God, what did I do? <laughs> so everything kind of, ha I have to bring in external structure, especially because I was on ADHD medication for a while and I, I have to say it, it does help, but I had some side effects and I, I didn't really like how I felt on it. So I, I had to go off of it. But throughout the time that I was on ADHD medication, it was super useful to be able to invent these mechanisms and now I kind of have them as a as a support as a scaffolding for my life and then I'm, I'm able to actually work with them but yeah it's it's a complicated thing but once you have the structures it becomes easier. I want to come back to expat culture now because I guess it's one part of your journey which you don't speak about a lot you kind of mentioned it a little bit on Benjamin Boyce's podcast. Now, you told me earlier in the pod how it was quite hard for you to integrate into London when you first got here. And to be honest, given how London is as a city, I don't blame you. It's pretty ruthless, especially the tube. Can you tell me about your experiences here and perhaps this part of the journey of being an expat that maybe isn't talked about too much? Yes, I think London, I mean, interestingly, I think London's been the, the warmest place I've lived <laughs> compared to the other, uh, my other places. Like, I mean, uh, I think Barcelona is, is, a, is a great place, but I'm not very good <laughs> Spanish speaker. It's Catalan also not at all. So, as you know, integrating with locals has been a bit, a bit tougher. And I think London is quite, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different type of city. And people, you know, they come from all over, all over the world, and they're usually there to do something productive or do something fun. And it's quite hard to get to that level of intimacy that you would with, you know, someone you grew up with or share like a, you know, a, a base culture with. And I think people live together in, in you know, in, in good harmony in London. 
but tying those those deep friendships is, is quite hard. And I think it's also a function of being older. I mean, I was I think twenty six or twenty seven when I moved to London. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in college, wasn't in high school. Yeah, I was working and I, I had great friends at work. But outside of work, it was pretty hard to meet people. And that's why I started updating, to be honest. I just wanted to talk to people. <laughs> it was the easiest way to, to go out with a friend. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite good, you know, just, you know, have a drink. Who knows? Who knows what happens? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, I think that that's kind of a function of it for a lot of people who travel a lot. That's kind of, you know, not really understood as well. Yeah, you just want to see a person. And maybe, you know, the Tinder is probably the easiest way to rustle up a person. Given what you've said about expat culture, do you see any solutions to it or the problems to it, I should say, that might engender greater social cohesion, connectedness, better mental health outcomes and help the expat community in general, whatever country they might be in? Mm, yeah, it is a, a tough question. What brings people together? And, you know, we have kind of more traditional solutions, which, you know, used to be, you know, church, things like that, religion, a common creed, you know, shared mythology. It's hard to create a faux modern version of that. I think, you know, in kind of like 1970s, 1980s America, you kind of had that with the melting pot culture where, you know, being American was just such a thing that people would shed their either a little bit of their prior identity to become this new American. But I think now with cities like London being quite more about what you can do in the city and what the city does for you in terms of your career prospects, you know, there's not really a London culture except for, you know, you know, Big Ben or something like that. Or maybe if you if you're a local, obviously there is a London culture. But for people who are expats, it's not really a requirement to buy into London culture. You know, you can live in London for 20 years and never think of yourself as a Londoner. So I think in the absence of that, it's pretty hard. I really do think that people need a shared mythology and to be like, oh, we're part of this. And, you know, I think football clubs and things like that really do offer the shared mythology. But for people like me who don't even understand football, <laughs> it, it would be it would be hard to create this uh, out of out of thin air. So. I, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I've, I've been I've been in this expat situation for maybe over 10 years. Now I'm back in Romania, where I come from. But it's been hard. You know, if I had a good answer to this, man, I, I'd be implementing it. The last part of this topic I want to discuss with you, Alex, is the psychological aspect of being a woman in a big city, which we spoke about off air. You had some thoughts about how this affects female mental health and the real life pressures that women have here versus men, such as, you know, for example, walking home late at night. Tell me a bit more about this and your experiences. I think, as I said, you know, the the kind of the the standard human for the big cities is, you know, a bit of a male pattern. You know, it's the, it's the living alone. It's the going to work X hours a day, you know, prioritizing your career, things like that. And also, yeah, there's just a different pressures for women, or at least the way women tend to experience these things is a little bit different. Obviously, you know, I'm talking about averages here, you know, there's are very different types of women. And, you know, some might not experience this this way. But the city is a is, is quite a, you know, a risky place. There's all sorts of dangers, there's all sorts of things that, you know, might go bump in the night. And there's there's kind of this low level anxiety that I've recognized in a lot of my friends, just by existing in a place, you know, being single or being kind of subject to the concrete jungle that uh, I think men experience as well, but might not just be might not be as affected by it. So just yeah, I think the city itself is, um, it's a tense environment. (laughs) 
our final topic of conversation, Alex, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include the worldwide circumstances we are living in, or you can exclude them if you want. How would you say your mental health is at the moment? Hmm. It's been better, <laughs> I have to say. I think the uh, the cabin fever is quite is quite intense. I think it's it's affecting me in ways that I can't really quantify. I can't really say by how many percent I feel more alienated from the world, but it's it's you know it's significant. It's been tough. I think lockdowns that's affected me, and it really has made you know ADHD be a, a more tough just because of the natural lack of structure. You know, I really thrive in a place where I know I have to bike to work for X amount of minutes, and then I do this, and then I do that, and now everything's up in the air and it's like oh you just create your own schedule man that's the worst thing I'm very bad at this so I really need to you know take it step by step and it's been a bit of a struggle with that outside of that I, I do think in my personal relationships I'm, I'm pretty good uh, I'm here at in Romania in my hometown and we have kind of like this duplex house where we live close to my mom and you know our relationship is really good and I live with my husband and he's you know our relationship is really good so that's been incredible blessing for me just being here and, and not being alone during COVID time which is I'm sure is just disastrous for some people you know especially you know what we discussed before about you know the urban environment and being you know closed in a in a little apartment by yourself and not having access to any social opportunities, it must be a disaster. So yeah, I can only empathize with people who are in that situation. So yeah, it's, you know, blessings on the one side and total cabin fever on the other. Yeah, relatively good, I would say. Great stuff. And it's great to hear that your relationship with your mom and your husband are so good, because let's face it, there's a few relationships that are not going to survive the end of first lockdown, let alone second lockdown. Exactly. It's been such a test, such a test for a relationship where just because we've been together now, we've left uh, London in March in two days. We packed up our whole house, put it on a truck and left and we took maybe the last few planes to Romania. So it was quite an adventure and we've been essentially locked in the house for what's it been since March? It's almost a year now and we haven't killed each other yet. So I think it's, you know, it's a stand, the test of a, of a solid marriage. <laughs> so yeah, pretty good. What age do you think you were when you first realized that the feelings you were having in your mind weren't physical and they were actually to do with your mental health, do you think? Hmm. I was just pretty late in my life. I mean, it depends what you were referring to. If it's the ADHD, it was pretty late in my life. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I was 30 years old when I was diagnosed. So yeah, quite an advanced stage of my life. And then I just had a, a lot of aha moments. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. I can't believe I <laughs> didn't know about this stuff. But yeah, I think it, it was quite illuminating. And also, it calmed me down a little bit, because I, I think one of the big consequences of having ADHD and it not being diagnosed is that you feel so guilty. You just feel like you're completely incompetent that you're not trying hard enough that you know there there must be some form of internal whip that you can go and, and grab and just whip yourself into shape and just do the thing but you know I couldn't find it and I was like okay this must be some form of you know demonic laziness that I have that I can't pick myself I, there are no bootstraps to, to pick myself up uh, up with so that was quite calming and it really did help me yeah, find some techniques to sort it out, you know, to work with what I have. And that's been really helpful. Tell me the story about the first time you had a conversation with someone about your mental health. You know, who was it with? What impact did it have on you? And 
did you feel like a part of you had changed and it was a very important moment or did it seem fairly insignificant and quite normalized? Hmm, I think, I mean, the first conversation I had about mental health was probably right after my, my father died with, with my therapist at the time. I think it was, it was helpful. To be honest, I can't, I can't remember. I just remember it was helpful. I mean, it was a, a long time ago. Yeah, I, I felt because he was he was an Adlerian um, therapist, and he had some some very interesting techniques that were kind of very metaphorical and evocative about something like you know uh, what type of animal do you identify with? And I was kept thinking like, dude, <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, I'm sure that there was some some benefit to it but i thought i don't know is this guy really advanced or is he you know yanking my chain here because i'm not sure but yeah I, I think it was it was useful it definitely made me feel better so yeah i think um yeah it was positive roi on that one and what triggers do you have that affect your mental health or have you not figured all of them out yet and this could be positive or negative yeah, I think the main struggle that I have is, you know, with, with ADHD and my main trigger is lack of structure. If I let lack of structure kind of seep into my life, you know, I could just have a week that's just wasted me kind of running on empty and freaking out about freaking out about freaking out. And then, you know, it's just like I don't have anything to latch onto. There's no I'm just grasping at straws. So without that external structure, I'm a bit lost. But once I create the structure and take a little bit of time out, then everything starts to work again. But it's it's yeah, just remembering that I need the structure because sometimes I forget and I think, oh, you know, things are going well. And then ah, I forget <laughs> that actually without the whole scaffolding, it doesn't work. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Mm, yeah, I think my main tool, which I carry with me everywhere, is my journal. Everything in the world is in here. And, you know, whenever I need I need to grasp at something, I just, you know, kind of do like a bit of a brain dump and say, OK, you know, what exactly is it that upsets me? And I try to use the external brain to sort out the negative thoughts and maybe kind of reframe them a little bit, you know, in a bit of a CBT way to say, OK, is this true? Why am I ruminating on this? What's a counter narrative? Is everything okay? And usually my answer is, yeah, most things are okay. This one thing is, you know, is on my nerves. So writing things down, as always, uh, has, has been the best mental health trick that I've had. And things that haven't worked, uh, you know, medication. Medication, you know, worked for a while. It doesn't, hasn't really worked in the long term because it is essentially, you know, quite an aggressive stimulant that people typically get for ADHD and there's all sorts of side effects and it also is a is a bit alienating sometimes to be in that state to be a bit zombie like you know it is productive but I feel like you're kind of selling your soul a little bit obviously not to criticize anyone who takes the medication I know it's extremely helpful for a lot of people who might not get side effects and obviously but this is my experience so yeah I don't know it's um it's it has its positives and negatives. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this podcast, Alex, and I'm sure you have lots to say here. Now, for me, I hope in a few more pods and a few more years, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and masculinity will be described in a very positive way and not derided as it is at the moment in some quarters. What does it mean to you and what examples have you experienced of it that, as a woman that you can share with the listeners? 
Hmm. Yeah, I think toxic masculinity is a big uh, is a big subject nowadays, and you know, there's different angles on it. And I think to me, what stands out is that there is a risk to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and you know, just say that masculinity is toxic. And I really don't think it is. And I think there's there's you know some extremely noble and beautiful stoical aspects of masculinity that sometimes get ignored because they're all kind of put under the same umbrella with uh, with maybe you know being brash aggressive and you know other things that are associated with toxic masculinity in my experience i mean i've had counters of what people might call toxic masculinity i mean i've uh, i've grown up in eastern europe you know people are pretty much quite more blunt than the civilized west but it was kind of a a fun world to be in like i growing up i've had a lot of male friends and i like i kind of like the aggressive sparring and you know the jokes and things like that but also maybe because they never really picked on me like they picked on each other it was always a bit kind of getting the soft treatment but it was a fun no holds barred environment that you don't really see in in girl groups because women tend to be much softer with criticism they don't really like confrontation that takes it out of the humorousness of the situation as well you don't really have the same high pitched banter that you would get in a in a male group and yeah maybe maybe because i think my personality profile is i'm i'm not very high in agreeableness and i'm not really <laughs> very rattled by you know a dirty joke or something i have male friends and kind of stick around with male groups more so i see you know how dark it can get especially you know people who are really powerful picking on people who are very weak and trying to you know spar it out and and assert dominance over people weaker than them but i also see the the upside so i don't know how to you know where to draw the line you know what's fun competition what's good natured what's good and what's you know what's bullying Because bullying happens happens with women as well it just has a typically a different presentation it's more about you know reputation destruction about gossip about ostracism it's really painful as well you know happened to me when i was growing up but you know with guys it's typically bullying and physical confrontations and it's just a different type of beast it's tough but I've heard some men describe it as, you know, kind of formative. Even, you know, things that might have been someone's bullying with someone else's, you know, call to stand up for himself and be like, "Okay, I'm not going to take this." Yeah, it's 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 quite a, a weird space, you know. I think it's it's very hard to throw the box with toxic masculinity out out the window without maybe losing something in the process as well. On the other end of the spectrum, a topic which I wanted to let you lead on is the idea of toxic femininity. Now, Tell me and the listeners what toxic femininity is and what examples you'd give of it and how it manifests in female attitudes, behaviours, and then how it impacts men. You shared a tweet quite recently, which was one example you gave of what you meant, but tell me a bit more here. Yeah, I think if we are to to grant women the quality of complete beings, which I I do like to to grant them, you know, they're they're completely human just like men are and they are flawed creatures just like men are and and typically there's certain behaviors that are more common amongst women and some of them are negative. So like I mentioned the female bullying, the reputational uh, attacks, the gossip, ostracism, things like that. There's also in in relationship to men there are certain behaviors that could be considered toxic like for example, you know, obviously very very controversial, but it's the the idea that, you know, women can be maximally sexually expressive with the condition that men are absolutely non-reactive to it and it kind of does put uh, men in a bit of a bind like for example you know like the anaconda video 
were essentially, you know, Nicki Minaj, as obviously the god empress of women nowadays, is just literally doing a strip show in front of a guy. And when he touches her, the whole show ends and everything's, you know, is kind of this whole idea that, you know, you can be extremely sexually exhibitionistic and get sexual power out of that. But men should be completely non-reactive and should know what you're thinking about if you are into, you know, maybe having a relationship or not. You know, this whole mind reading expectation, I think, is also kind of toxic. There are many layers to this. Obviously, I'm not saying all women do this all the time. Uh, I'm saying that this is a variant of behavior that's, I think, it's in some ways equivalent to what we call toxic masculinity, but is not really discussed that much. Coming back full circle to the dating economy, do you think that toxic femininity exists in the dating economy as well? And if so, in what ways? I think it's, um, I don't know if, it, if it's exactly toxic femininity. I think women would do well to, to kind of understand the marketplace a little bit better and they would be a bit more enlightened by what's what's actually going on. I think a, a lot of women have different, you know, maybe, maybe unrealistic expectations about what the dating economy as it is can offer and maybe they they blame it on guys being fuckboys or the patriarchy or something but it's it's essentially a numbers game you know it's a bit of supply and demand and as i said a, a lot of average guys are kind of being left out of the game the top guys will date women but they will typically not settle down with them and a lot of women do want to have a long-term boyfriend or get married and i see a lot of heartache from that contrast that, oh, yes, he went on a date with me, but there was no second date, or maybe there was a second date, but then he ghosted me. So I think the logic there doesn't always match up with reality. Uh, and I think a lot of women are disgruntled by it, and they don't really know what's going on. And they might be blaming things that are not necessarily real. Do you think a part of what you're talking about when it comes to toxic femininity involves the assumption that all women are inherently good and therefore doesn't examine them as full human beings or is it different to that yeah i think that's a an, an interesting phenomenon i think there's a quite there's even you know a bit of study on that it's called the, the women are wonderful effect in social sciences obviously the caveat is that social sciences as a, as a discipline is now under under fire because a lot of this the, the results aren't replicable but if we take it at its word there's kind of an effect where women kind of interpret the motives and tendencies of women as positive and so do men interpret them also as, as more positive than they would men in the similar situation so I think, yeah, people expect women to be much more virtuous than men. And I think that kind of trickles down into how they see dating or, you know, the mating economy as well. And just finally, Alex, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, whatever gender they are, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? Hmm. Yeah, I think we live in a in a time where, you know, talking about mental health has been quite destigmatized. So I think that's been an amazing step forward. You know, as a person, I'm, I'm now much more comfortable talking about these issues because I don't really feel like there's, you know, there's some Damocles hanging over me if I make some mistake or tell someone about this. I think it's quite, you know, a golden age of dealing with these things. How to move it forward is, I think, you know, if people feel comfortable, and I think they should, you know, to be honest with the people around them about their struggles. And yeah, just try to, you know, invite other people to, to share or to work on their issues if they, they really have something that's uh, functionally a problem for them, or they feel like it's inhibiting their life in some way. 
Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Alex for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. I hope you found it thought-provoking, engaging, and a pod to get you thinking. I'll put some links to where you can follow Alex on social media, read some of the articles we mentioned, watch the Benjamin Boyce podcast she did, and find out more about her in the show notes. Thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in, as always. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or give us a rating uh, and a review on Apple Podcasts and support our Patreon. We would really, really appreciate it. We hope to check in with you again very, very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.